the most shocking moments of, of my childhood that I remember, and I think a big surprise actually for all movie watchers was in The Empire Strikes Back uh, when Darth Vader, the main villain, reveals that he is actually Luke Skywalker's father. Sorry if you've not seen it, but you should probably know that by now, honestly. Uh, the surprise was, of course, that we thought, we all fully understood who this character was. This, but this new revelation forced us to, to rethink everything that we thought we knew about this character and the whole story that we had heard so far. Now, a similar shocking moment, a revealing instance about the true identity of a, a leading character actually also occurs in Scripture, which is easy for us to overlook at this point in church history. But God had revealed himself throughout the entire Old Testament period and had promised to rescue his people and to bring about their full deliverance. And Old Testament believers, like Christians today, looked to God in faith, trusting his grace and promise as the only hope for their deliverance. In the New Testament, though, we find the big reveal that Jesus Christ is the God who had made a covenant with his people and promised to redeem them throughout the Old Testament. Now, specifically, Christ is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And it was his particular task in the plan of salvation to come and fulfill all of God's promises for salvation by his life, death, and resurrection. And so, the early Christians were, were struck by this joyous surprise that Jesus Christ is the God who is working to save his people across the millennia of redemptive history as recorded in Scripture. And in that regard, the, the first Christians, especially the authors of the New Testament, reread the Old Testament, now knowing that the end is fulfilled in Christ the Son. So just like the second time you might watch or read a, a mystery, all of the clues are now obvious since you know the ending. And so the apostles studied the Old Testament with new clarity about all, the, all of the elements that seemed so mysterious before Christ came. Now Jude is a book about perseverance in the faith. It is about the difference between those whom God has effectually called to salvation and those who are in the church trying to corrupt it in doctrine and practice. So we've seen that Jude 1 to 4 is about that distinction between those whom God has called and those whom God has appointed for condemnation. Jude 5 to 13 contains a series of exhortations based on Old Testament events, but aimed at directing Christians to contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. 
Now, this sermon today focuses on Jude 5. Jude doesn't have chapters, as you know. So, so we just refer to it by the verses. So, Jude verse 5. Uh, now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, there, there are several themes, actually, that come out of this one verse. And actually, it's packed enough that I think we have to spend a, a few weeks on this one thing. Uh, so, so more specifically, this sermon is about the one idea, one idea that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt. So the accounts in the book of Exodus about Israel being rescued from slavery in Egypt never mentioned the name Jesus. Very clearly, God brought Israel out of Egypt. But Jude quite readily attributes that saving work to Jesus. And so our task today is to unpack the relevance of Jude's claim that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt. So so we're going to think about how the whole Bible, the whole Bible is about God's one plan of salvation and how he saves them in the same way no matter when they lived throughout redemptive history. So Reformed theology has traditionally called this doctrine the covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace uh, just means that there is one way, one plan of salvation that is accomplished in Christ, regardless of when in history we're talking about. Jude's point that Jesus is the God who saved Israel is an important premise of that doctrine. So the main point is that the covenant of grace means that Jesus has always and always will save God's people by grace alone, through faith alone. Jesus has always and will always save God's people by grace alone, through faith alone. Now, we're going to take this on through a series of questions. So the first question is, what is the covenant of grace? The covenant of grace is simply God's one plan of salvation. To save his people by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. To be really specific, though, Christ is the Savior of God's people, no matter in which era of history they lived, since the fall. And I don't know that we think specifically about that very often. So even those believers who lived before the Son was born of a virgin in human nature, before he died on the cross, before he rose from the grave, believers who lived before that were still saved by Christ. In other words, when Jesus said in John fourteen six that no one comes to the Father except through me, we should hear him in full seriousness that absolutely no one is right before God apart from Christ. Jude said that Jesus saved a people from Israel. 
or saved a people from Egypt. So I think I have to quote the confession here, but then we'll jump to the biblical passages, which are more exciting. So Westminster Confession 7.3. Man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant of works, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offered unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved and promising to give unto all those who are ordained unto life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. Notice that happened. Man having made himself incapable of life. This is a history-encompassing plan of salvation. The covenant of grace is that God promises to rescue sinners apart from their works because of Christ and his work. And we receive that by taking hold of Christ by faith. Now, a covenant is simply, I mean, it sounds like a big word, right? But, But it just means a formal relationship. That's all it is. We make covenants every day. When we sign contracts with our employers about our responsibility and rewards, when we take an exam at school, right? You do this and they will give you a grade. Perhaps most pointedly when we get married and take wedding vows. And if marriage is is the most pointed example, then a covenant we need to see is certainly not dryly contractual, but is a cemented relationship. Okay? And all of God's actions, saving actions especially, are grounded in His covenant, formal relationship that He has promised to His people. Jude appealed to the Exodus event as the example of Christ's saving work. So in Moses' account of, of God explaining how he would rescue his people from, from Egypt in, in Exodus 6, 2 to 4 especially, uh, God says, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. A land which Hebrews tells us points forward to the heavenly kingdom. As God announced his coming coming salvation, he appealed to a covenant that he had already made. And so God then works through covenants to save his people. So the, the covenant of grace is just that one plan of salvation. So our second question then, though, and this is probably the more pressing question, especially if this is new to you, is how, how is salvation in Christ the same? How is salvation in Christ the same? The main point I've emphasized so far is Jude's reference to Christ saving his people in the Old Testament signals what Reformed people call the covenant of grace, which teaches that salvation has always, Old and New Testaments, been in Christ. And so at this point, I want to think about Romans 4, 
verses 1 to 6. I'm going to read this, but if you have a Bible or it's on your phone, you might scroll there. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? Because if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him, is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Now, Paul's point there was that that justification has to be by faith. Justification is God's declaration that we're righteous in his sight, right? It's the legal establishment of a right relationship with our God. Now, Paul was emphasizing here that the Israelites and the Gentiles had to be justified by faith because, one, sinners cannot earn God's blessings by works. And two, before Israel ever even had the written law, Abraham was justified by faith. Now, Paul appealed to Abraham and David. This is so cool, right? Like, if you pay attention to what the Bible is doing, you you should never be bored by this book. Uh, Paul appeals to Abraham and David as the examples of how we, after Christ's coming, are justified. Think about that. The, The only way, the only way that Paul's appeal to these Old Testament examples actually functions logically is if they were actually justified in the same way that we are. If they are the examples of how you are saved, then we have to be saved in the same way. So faith then, building on that, Faith is, and always has been, the means of receiving salvation from Christ before and after he came. Now, the difference is, I know there's a question there, and so the difference between Old and New Testament faith is not one of quality, but of perspective. What do I mean? Right? Our faith looks back to the Christ who has come and what he has done. And Old Testament faith simply looked forward to Christ who would come and what he would do. Now, here, If you and I are looking at a statue, but you're standing in front of it, and I'm looking at it from behind, we don't say we're doing different things. We're, we're doing the same thing from different angles. And that is the difference 
between Old and New Testament faith. And that is how every believer has always been saved by Christ. Faith is the soul's hand by which we grasp the Savior and has always been so. That is what right we sang Psalm 110. And that is why Hebrews tells us that Psalm 110 verse 4 may appointed Christ as the mediator of a better covenant. Before he was born, he was the mediator. In this eternal conversation among the Trinity, the Lord said to the Lord, the Father said to the Son, you are the mediator, a priest forever. So, that is how salvation is the same in Christ. So our next question, third question, why are there differences in the outward form of God's people, right? Why are there differences in the outward form of God's people? Because undeniably, God's Old Testament people lived out their faith in a way that looks much different than in the New Testament. Nobody is going to dispute, well, at least nobody should dispute that. If salvation is the same in both Testaments, then how do we explain how God commanded the Old Testament people to conduct their worship in much more complicated and ceremonial ways than he has instructed us to do? Okay, so I'm going to give you a distinction uh, and I'm going to give you the terms, but I'm going to illustrate it right away. So don't panic when I throw terms at you. We should explain that sameness of salvation in contrast to the, to the different outward appearances of God's people by making a distinction between the covenant's substance and administration. Let's illustrate it. We can think about the relationship of substance and administration with the analogy of of buying ice cream at an ice cream shop. I've noticed that all of my illustrations are either movies or food. I don't know what that says, but we're going to think about ice cream now. (laughs) Uh, So when you go to an ice cream shop, one important decision that you have to make is whether uh, you want it, want your ice cream in a cup or a cone. Now, whichever way you, you decide that you get your ice cream, it is still ice cream. On the other hand, it is given to you, the same thing is given to you in very different ways. And in one way, you actually may need extra tools like a spoon to help you eat it. Now, in this situation, the substance is the ice cream. But cups and cones are administrations, different kinds of administrations, in fact. Whatever way that you receive your ice cream... It is ice cream, and it is the thing that you actually want. The ice cream in this visit to the shop is the purpose, so it is the substance. 
And the cup is one way to deliver the substance, one way to administer it. But uh, on the other hand, it is a very different delivery system than a cone. Okay, the cup is one way to deliver it, but it looks different than a cone, which still delivers the same substance. Although every analogy has its shortcomings. I hope you're getting the point that the covenant of grace works a lot like this illustration. Okay, Christ is the substance of both Old and New Testaments. Both administrations deliver Christ to God's people even though those administrations look and work very differently. Now, what may surprise you is that this is not a new or even exclusively reformed view. In the, in the second century, Irenaeus, so Irenaeus's pastor was pastored by the Apostle John. So we're talking about three people from Jesus. Irenaeus wrote about the Old and New Testaments. All things, therefore, have one and the same substance. That is, from one and the same God. In fact, The head of the house, right, dealing with Hebrews 3, is the Lord Christ, who rules the entire house of the Father. And so, there is one salvation and one God. It's amazing, isn't it, that you believe the same thing that Christians have believed for 1,900 years. You stand in continuity on this issue as a Reformed person with what God has taught his people since the ascension of Jesus Christ. God's plan of redemption is unified. This is what we have believed and still believe, confess, God's plan of redemption is unified across the whole scope of history to save his people in Christ. Why does this matter? Last question. Why does this matter? We've unpacked the implications of of one point in Jude 5, that Jesus saved the Old Testament people. That doesn't expound the full uh, range of Jude's point that he's making, but it has been a necessary demonstration of one of Jude's assumptions so that in future weeks we can understand his point holistically. I, I think in the past I've tried to jam this sort of thing into half a point, and I don't know that that's been of adequate service to you. So I'm trying to outline it more at length now so that we can get what Jude is doing as we unfold the ideas. We need to have this understanding of the covenant of grace in place 
if we're going to understand what Jude is saying within his wider argument as an address to Christians to contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. Now, this covenant of grace has two points of relevance for us as we study Jude to help us know Christ and live for him. And the first is that God never changes. There is, yeah, this is, in one, one way, this is an affirmation that God is immutable and eternal. He doesn't change. In another way, this is something very pointed, and I think you need to, to hear very carefully, because you, you may not believe what I'm about to say, but I guarantee you know someone who thinks this. Okay? There is no difference between God and the Old and the New Testaments. Because too many people have lingering vestiges of the terrible understanding of Scripture that God is somehow different across the Testaments. There is not, there is not a harsher God of the Old Testament and a gentler God of the New who is now gracious in Christ. Jesus saved the Old Testament people. And so God has always been full of grace in Christ toward his people. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The book of Hebrews tells us. God is the same. He does not change, which means every promise he makes to you cannot be undone. Second. So there's a a hope of assurance in the first, right? God has dealt with his people the same way since the fall. God doesn't change. And there's another way that impacts the way we live, right? Even though there are, so the second thing, even though there are significant differences in the way that God's people look outwardly in our worship and practices today, our continuity with God's Old Testament people teaches us that God does indeed still care about our holiness. The God of grace is the same, but the God who calls his people to gospel-powered faithfulness is also the same. And that is, in fact, the emphasis of Jude, perseverance. The Christ of grace and truth is the Savior of all of God's people. And so New Testament salvation does not mean that we can turn God's grace into an excuse for sinfulness, sexual immorality, and license. Jude is very clear about that. The covenant of grace has always been full of matchless grace coming to us in Christ 
But God has always summoned his people to live for him in gratitude for that grace. So we cannot say God's law was difficult in the Old Testament and now God is not really worried about what we do. God is the same. We don't have ceremonial or judicial laws as the people of God, but we have the moral law stamped on our hearts, summarized in the Ten Commandments. Now, all of us need a reminder of at least one of these aspects. If you're not a Christian, then you need a reminder that everyone has always needed a Savior, and you cannot be right with God by your works. God's standards for the creatures who are made in His image to reflect Him is perfection. If you are less than perfect, then you are condemned before God. Unless like God's people of all time, of all time, you would take shelter in the grace of Jesus Christ who lived to provide that record of perfect holiness, died to cleanse us of sin, and rose from the grave as a pledge that those who believe in him are guaranteed everlasting life. If you are a Christian, well, maybe you need a reminder that God's grace has always been followed by the summons to faithfulness as gratitude for that grace. The grace we have in Christ is not an excuse to discard the life of godliness to which God calls us. In fact, God has given us grace for the purpose that we would be holy predestined in love to be holy and blameless before him. You are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Indeed, not created by good works, but for them. And that is why Jude so vigorously opposed those who would pervert God's grace to permit their wicked desires. Everyone, everyone, so this now encompasses us all, needs the reminder that Christ has always and will always pour out God's grace upon his people. It has always been the moment and right now remains the moment to flee to Christ for grace. Perhaps flee to Christ for the first time. Perhaps flee to Christ for grace if we have abused grace. Certainly flee to Christ if you are aware that your shortcomings mean that you need a Savior. God has always showered his people with love 
through grace found in Jesus Christ. And he will do so for you today. Let's pray. Father God, no one comes to you except through Christ. And we are glad that indeed no one comes to you except through Jesus Christ. Because it means that we are not left searching how we might find you. We are told we find you in the Lord Jesus. And you have told us about who he is. He is the son in our nature who lived the life we should have lived to earn citizenship in heaven. And he died because we are failures and sinners. So that all of our penalties would be wiped away. Nailed to the cross in him. And he rose because death could not overcome the righteous one. He has swallowed the sting of death and wiped it away for the people of God. And we pray that right now is a moment of new understanding, new appreciation, and a moment of developing faith for every single person in this room to one degree or other because we pray that if there is someone here who has not trusted in Jesus Christ, that right now they see he has been the need and the one who meets the need of everyone since the fall. And that right now you would create faith in him in their hearts. But God, we also pray that everyone who belongs to Jesus would see with new clarity how Jesus is the matchless Savior who has saved, indeed, every one of your people spanning the entire scope of history. He is the Savior. He is our Savior. And we pray that we would cherish belonging to him. We do pray these things in his name. Amen.